Welcome to Limitless, how to crush it in commercial real estate. The show that gets you inside access to how some of retail real estate's most successful leaders went from your average Joe Schmo to the CEO. I'm your host, Aaron Zucker. Hey everyone, before we get started, I wanted to take a quick second to thank the guys at CM for making this podcast happen. They've brought Limitless from an idea to making it a reality, and I can't thank them enough for support along the way. If you're looking to get going on your own content creation journey or need help with your marketing, I'd strongly encourage you to reach out to them at kazcm.com. Libby Lassiter's journey from working at McDonald's to becoming the co-president of Bayer Properties is one of the more decorated careers worth celebrating that we've had so far on Limitless. She is a true American success story about grit, maximizing talent, and just making things happen. And I'm so excited to share it with you guys. So let's go ahead and get right into it. My good friend down in the wonderful state of Alabama, specifically in Birmingham, Libby Lasseter. Appreciate you joining. Limitless. How's it going? It's going great, Aaron. Thanks for having me today. Yeah, no, I think a lot of people out there are really excited to hear your story on how you became the president of Bear Properties to own. For those of you who don't know, some of the most preeminent, iconic outdoor real estate across the country. So to be running an organization like that is an unbelievable feat. And I think we're certainly going to talk plenty about that, but I think everybody's going to want to know how you got there. So let's jump right into it. Where did you grow up? How did you grow up? What was your childhood like? Tell us all about that. Okay. Well, I was, um, I'm a Southerner. I was born in Savannah, Georgia. One of three kids raised mostly in Atlanta, though my dad had different jobs. Um, we opened offices in Savannah and Columbia, South Carolina, but we always ended up back in Atlanta. So I'll talk about him first. My father, Bobby, as he was fondly known, he was an employee benefits broker and he was a consummate entertainer. I don't think he ever met anybody he didn't like or that he would drink with. He was quite the entertainer, as I said. He loved every kind of music. He loved every kind of person. He loved every kind of food. Like I think back on Bobby, he's no longer with us, but he just lived life to its fullest. Like in music, he loved Zamfir. Do you know who Zamfir is? <laughs> I can tell you with full confidence. I have no idea who that is. So I don't know if I'm embarrassing myself or not on my own show. No, we'll not see. at all. It's really, I'm embarrassing Bobby, but he was a pan flute, whatever that is. Okay. And he loved Bach and Ronnie Millsap. So we always used to laugh and say he had taste in music and every kind of music, but he really had no taste in So uh, that was Bobby. He... As I said, it was the same with food. They entertained a tremendous amount. We had people over at our house all the time. My mom was like the Julia Child of Atlanta. And my dad loved, you know, Julia Child to Burger King and everything in between. So he was this big personality and he just filled the room when he walked in. And I think that's where I got my people connector genes, uh, definitely from Bobby. Sure. So... So he had, and the Jews like to say, as the people in my culture like to say, he had chutzpah. I'm out of charisma. <laughs> yes. Got it. And this is a person I just say he filled the room. <laughs> there, you there you go. So, so tell us about your, your mom. Oh, so that's Tippy. 
And she grew up in a small town in, in North Carolina. But when she married my dad, who was a pretty conservative guy, I'll say, and we lived in a pretty white upper middle class neighborhood in Buckhead in Atlanta. But Tippy was like the liberal. She stood out. She was like, had so much influence on me in that way. She instilled in her kids that being white did not mean that you were better than anyone and that racism was wrong. And I mean, I've lived that throughout my life. I think she just really had that value. And talk about coming in to play, you know, right now. So I think that's an important value that she instilled in us. But yeah, kind of weird. We had a live-in housekeeper who we dearly loved, Lucy. And so she like lived with us like all through my growing up. And uh, Lucy was good with the switch. And uh, she was also a great cook. And um, I think they named a TV show after I loved Lucy. (laughs) So she was our housekeeper and lived, lived in. She was like a second mom to me. But, you know, it's kind of a juxtaposition having this live-in housekeeper, black, and, you know, liberal mother, conservative father. We were kind of, a, you know, a strange family for sure. But my mom was really cool. She was an art teacher. And I think that's where I got my creative side from her. And she still does art. She still paints to this day. And she lives here in Birmingham. Actually, she moved here after we came to Birmingham. Oh, nice. So tell me, you said your mom grew up in small town, North Carolina. Try me. I bet you I know it. Where? What town? Uh, Franklinton. Okay. That's pretty small. It's really small. That's a small town. And she grew up in a time where inclusion and cohesiveness in, in our environment, I'm sure, were not very popular. What gave her... I mean, in some ways... It's crazy to even think about it. She was almost a rebel because, uh-huh. right? I mean, if she was super liberal and running around North Carolina, Franklinton, North Carolina at the time, saying, hey, everybody should be all involved together. I mean, that must have been... Some people probably raised some eyebrows at her. I don't know when she picked that up, actually. I just know it as a child that she just said those things. And as we experienced racism in the community, she would just speak out against it. So that's really how I knew. Her dad, he had the car dealership and he was also a bootlegger. So they had stills in North Carolina. So she said they were like feast and famine. They were rich one minute and then they were poor the next. So she said it just went back and forth. But I don't know how that influenced her, but somehow that's the way she became. She went to college when she was 16 at Agnes Scott in Atlanta. So very young, went off to college, I think, to get out of the small town and to the big city of Atlanta. So who knows where that came from, but that's Tiffy. Cool. You said you had two siblings. Where do you rank in age? I'm the middle. So I have an older sister who is in Boston and have a younger brother who also followed us to Birmingham. Oh, cool. What was the age difference? Did you guys fight? How did they, how did you guys influence each other and what they ended up doing? So I think these details of the story always come back later on. Oh, in the conversation. I was the rebel, middle child rebel. Clearly. You were, you were mad that no one was paying attention to you. I mean, I just don't know where that came from, but I was. But uh, my sister was four years older. She was superstar in high school. She was president of everything. You know, she did everything. She was just like achiever, achiever, achiever. And me, you know, I just wanted to have fun. I wanted to get in trouble. I just was grounded like for half my life. 
I feel like my mom said at one point, you know, like we have nothing else but your bed to take away from you. So <laughs> crazy. And then I had this younger brother who ended up at private school and all boys private school, Rob. And he was like the techie of the family. He's really, you know, again, had this just very great gift with technology. And that's what he does to this day. He's a nice. tech. Cool. So those were the siblings. Got it. So I suspect that as you were getting in trouble all the time, you were also, but at the same time, you were a straight-A student, right? I went through busing and integration. They closed our high school in like ninth grade. So it was an all-white high school. And then um, there was an all-black high school and they threw us all together. Uh-huh. And what I would say is that I could make A's without trying. The level of teaching at that time through desegregation was very low. Most of the teachers just left the system. So my high school, it was just, again, a time where school was just not the most important thing to me. But I did make great grades and I really didn't have to try very hard. But I don't think I got a great education in high school. So it's funny, you think about what, how they did things back then. There was no sensitivity training for the teachers or the students or anybody. They just threw us all together and said, you know, just make it work. And I think for the most part, we did. There really weren't a lot of issues. But I do think that's an interesting point that I did go through desegregation, really that first way. Mm-hmm. So you were a good student, but you were having your fun on the weekends, playing checkers or doing whatever you did. And then mm-hmm. and what happens next? You, I assume you go off to school. Well, actually, not a student. Well, I, know you, I know you go off to school. I did go off to school, but at 15, I got a job at McDonald's. I thought you'd find this story kind of interesting. And so just like I wanted to work, you know, I wanted to make my own money. I was completely wanted to be independent of my parents. I was a rebel, again, do my own thing. So I went to work for this McDonald's and the manager made me the star representative. And so that, (laughs) that meant that in the back, in the parking lot, there was a mobile trailer, office trailer, and that was my office. And I had a desk a phone and I had a budget of like 50 bucks a month to do marketing events. So that was my first job description, drive traffic. Hmm, how do you think that relates to the shopping center business? Yeah, that's, I really appreciate you making sure that we knew that because that's some pretty serious foreshadowing. Yeah, so I really had a great time with that. It was kind of a leadership role as well because I had to get all these people to participate. We did these marketing events where we would take pictures of kids in front of a safari scene that I had painted. I used my brother's BB gun and my dad's safari hat. And then, you know, these families would come back after we get the pictures developed. I mean, do you even know what that word means, developed pictures? Yeah. Huh. I do. I remember having the Polaroids and, and taking the camera with the little the one where you had to spin the circle three times over when I was growing up. It was Eckerd at the time to get the pictures. Yes, Eckerd. Uh huh. Yeah. So we get the pictures developed, and the families would come back the next Sunday, and they'd pick up their pictures and hopefully get a, a burger and fries or a whopper at McDonald's. So that was a great, great experience for me. So. Worked there a couple of years and you know, just did anything in high school to make money. I, would, I worked any kind of job that I could get. What were some of the jobs that you were doing? Oh gosh, I worked at the jeans store or I did, worked in the malls. When the malls first, like Cumberland Mall first opened, I was like one of the first employees. Wow. There. Went to that grand opening, if you know that mall in Atlanta. So, I do. 
I grew up in, in malls. I was a kid that went to the malls as they were being developed. Sure. Yeah. So you, so, retail was just ingrained in you at an early age then. It really was. And work ethic and, and that's already starting to make sense to me. Okay. So you're doing well in school. You're having fun. You're working extracurricular jobs. And then you go off to school, which I'll let you fill in, fill in the blanks there for it. So I went to Georgia, University of Georgia, followed my entire like high school class. Like we all just went, I mean, you just went to Georgia. Sure. You never even looked at a school outside of Georgia. I don't think I even applied to any other schools. So I ended up there and had a really fun and you know, fast and furious first year there. It was great. But then in my sophomore year, I got sick, like seriously ill. And I had to go home and I had to wait, had to sit out that semester. And that was like in September, I think, of 77. And for like two, three months, I was like at home recuperating. I'd had surgery and it was like really a bad, bad year. And so I got really bored sitting around and I got a job at an architecture kind of engineering firm in Atlanta, Southern um, Engineering Company. And they had an architectural group and I got an admin position with them just filling in for somebody But it was really interesting because I was not interested in being an admin at all. I was really interested in architecture and you know what they were doing, site planning, just anything to do with the design side. So I think that creative side came out from me there. And I started classes at another school, Southern Tech, which actually ended up merging with Georgia Tech and merged into Georgia Tech years later. But I took like technical architectural classes there while I worked. And I was just hooked on working and working in that field. So I did that for a, a pretty good while. I didn't go back to Georgia until years later to continue. Anyway, that was good, but that stint didn't last long. There was maybe a year, year and a half, and companies were changing and they were downsizing. And you know, my position really wasn't needed. So I got another job. That's when I went into the restaurant industry. And uh, Ruby Tuesdays, another uh, name kind of from the past, yeah. <laughs> if you will, was like three stores is all they had no at way. that time. Yeah. So they opened in Lenox Square Mall and I got a job there. And very quickly, I ended up being a trainer for them. And they were opening stores all over the Southeast. And so I became one of Florida trainers and I moved with them to Florida to open restaurants. So that was a really, really great experience and training for me because I was training other people. They had a system. I learned that system. They taught you how to upsell food and drinks and bring ticket prices up. And so I taught other people that and about the concept. And we just marched around Florida and opened stores for them. Wow. What an experience that must have been. It was great. Oh my goodness. How old were you at that time when you were doing that? I would say that was probably the early 80s, probably 79, 80. So I was probably maybe 21, 2021. Wow. I mean, you must have been high on life. You've got this company who's paying to send you around and go see different parts of the South. And this is a big debate. Florida's not really the South, right? You and I both. No. <laughs> I know there's people in Florida who are going to be listening to this and DM me or whatever and be like, you're wrong. And it's not the South just because it's it the other stuff. So you must have had a major culture shock. But knowing you and your background, like I'm sure that was exciting more than nerve wracking. It was definitely exciting. Ate it up, loved it. You know, we worked really hard opening these stores, and then we would go out and party at night. And you know, I was loving life. I was making great money. My all my expenses were paid. Pretty good gig for a twenty-one year old. Sure. So, how long did you end up doing that for? And what happens next? 
maybe two, two and a half years. And then, you know, you just get worn out from that kind of lifestyle. And so I moved back to Atlanta and that's how I got into commercial real estate. My two best friends in the world, uh, Bunch Jameson and Candy Lees, had formed this little company in Atlanta called Jameson Research. And I'll bet there's some commercial real estate people that know that company, but they were very early on in what I'll call CRM, Customer Relationship Management. So what they did was go out and research companies that were in office buildings in Atlanta. And they took the data and they compiled it into a computer system. So Budge was kind of the guy that had all the relationships and Candy was the computer guru. And between the two of them, they like created these databases that they would sell to landlords and their leasing agents. And leasing agents would use the data, you know, lease expirations and whatnot to make deals, to figure out when to call on office users. That is some cutting edge technology at that point in time. I mean, that's when we were still, people were still using index cards for tracking prospects and whatnot. So it was very, very cutting edge. And I started with them just in research. I just went out, went to companies, cold cold companies and tried to get the data. You know, was your lease up and you know how to get that data. There were a lot of tricks, but that's where I started with them. But then they ended up merging or you know partnering with another company, Dory's Office Guide. Again, pretty famous in the early 80s in Atlanta. So it was the Office Buildings magazine and you know, real estate was booming. Yeah, at the time, big high-rise office buildings were going up all over town, rich developers. So with Dory, they that partnership, I ended up going into sales for both companies. So basically, I was selling all the products for magazine and data to these real estate, these landlords and developers. Got it. So they were your good friends before and they just started this company? Like, I knew Candy hey, in college at Georgia. So Got that's it. how I knew her. And then we just were all you know friends in Atlanta. And, and Budge had another partner that was in real estate, Walter Fish. And we were just a group. We, we were a friend group. Before friend groups you know, had that name. So. There you go. You were basically really tied in by virtue of your role and excelling in your role with all the heavy hitters in the office space. And yep. What a great platform to get into. Yeah, Yeah, for sure. I I couldn't agree anymore. So how long did you do that for? Well, before we move on, actually, I I ask everybody this. And maybe... You know what? Actually, I'm going to hold that question back. I was going to ask you what embarrassing story that you have. But I wanted to be more like... You were a part of the commercial real estate business then. But I want to to hear an embarrassing, like truly like ingrained as if not on the research side story. So maybe if you have one from that job, great. Let's hear it. If not... We can jump to the next role because I'm sure you probably get into more of the meat and potatoes of the business at that point. I'll give you one from my next run there at uh, Vantage. So the Vantage Companies was one of my clients. A big Texas developer, kind of when Heinz and Trammell Crow and all the... I mean, they were one of the big three. And they opened an Atlanta office and they immediately became a client. They bought everything, every product I had to sell. And one of the partners, John Stabler, who started that office, was like, Libby, what are you doing? You know, like selling this ad space and research. And and he's like, that is so boring. You need to be selling space space, like high-rise office space. We're building all these great buildings. Come on our side and I'll tell you, you're going to be a partner with Vantage in two years. And I was like, wow. I mean, talk about appealing. And, you know, again, I was like 25, I think at the time, maybe 26. 
And so I made the jump. I thought, I'm going to go out and sell high-rise office space, some sexy new high-rise buildings. And, you know, and they were paying me really, really well. And, you know, it was a great, great thing. And then I'm going to become a partner. I mean, it was just so appealing. So that was a really, really interesting time in commercial real estate in Atlanta. I mean, again, there was so much under... You talk about a boom. Under construction, it was crazy. It was like there was no end to the money that was going into development. Yeah, it feels like it was probably very similar to like Dallas at that point in time. Very much so. You know, you guys um, started running around town developing anything and everything you could and buying up uh, all the billboards, braves and everything. And so that must have been... Couldn't even imagine what that was like. So you were a leasing agent or were you... So I was a leasing agent. So that was my first leasing agent position. And man, did we work hard. The leasing team for Vantage... And so we had um, a couple of senior people. One of them was Candace Lig, who was kind of, I was on her team in the office. And so she was like one of the early female real estate mavens in Atlanta. I mean, she is famous there. And for me to have gotten to work with Candace, that was a very, very big deal. And, you know, I have such respect for her because there was not another woman I can think of in Atlanta that had achieved what she had achieved. So getting to work for, for Candace was a, a big deal. So I was a junior leasing rep. And then David Ball was the other junior leasing rep. And he's doing industrial and office. And so David and I, we stayed late at night. I mean, we were going to make it. We were both going to be partners advantage. You know, that was our mission. And we were going to do everything it took to be productive. And um, so we stayed at work at night. And we went out and looked at space on weekends. He was doing industrial. So we'd go out on Sunday afternoons and look, look at like rail serve bolt distribution land. And he just was like, wow, isn't this great? And I was like, oh, look at my beautiful new high-rise office buildings. Isn't this great? Anyway, so that was really a fun time. Again, we were like all over it. But my best story, I don't know if this meets your criteria, Aaron, but was Rankin-Smith. You talk sports. Do you know who Rankin-Smith is? Our owner of the Falcons. Okay. So that's who Arthur Blythe bought the team from? Yes. So Rankin Smith wanted to move the Falcons office and um, their corporate office. And so we were showing them our project, Atlanta Plaza, Candace and I. It was this big building in Buckhead, like 30, I think 38 stories tall. And I was under construction. And so here I am, hard hat and high heels. That was my gig. And the construction elevator was basically a cage on the outside of the building. And so Rankin, you know, comes for the meeting and we go up to the top of the building and he's got this big burly security guy with him who I think was probably, you know, a former Falcon. I mean, he was like three times the size of me. And so we get into the construction cage and I crank the wheel thing that takes you up and boom, the cage goes up really, really fast. And this construction guy is just like, his eyes are getting bigger and bigger and he's like looking down. He's just like an open cage. It's probably fairly dangerous and you may not, you know, might be a little safer today in, in this day and age. But we get to the top, to the probably 35th floor, and, you know, there's a gap between the cage and the slab of the building. They don't marry up. So you got to walk over this, like, foot gap, you know, looking down 35 stories. Have you ever done that? Uh, no, I'm petrified of heights. Petrified. <laughs> Well, you couldn't have been a leasing agent with me. No, that's why I like retail. Second floor space is frowned upon. <laughs> yeah, there you go. So anyway, that security guy was like up against the backside of the cage. He wouldn't come near. I just popped on over in my high heels and like, come on, come on. 
He was like, ma'am, uh, no. <laughs> so what did he do? He just stayed in the cage. <laughs> <laughs> so you caged this person that could have eaten you, basically. Yeah, that's right. And so, but we did make the deal. Um, we made the Falcons deal and they moved to Atlanta Plaza. And so that was fun. Wow. But, uh, all good things have to come to an end and all that overbuilding in Atlanta, that was my first recession. So um, it wasn't really a national recession like we've experienced uh, of recent. It was a real estate recession purely from overbuild. So, you know, those buildings... It's basically Econ 101, right? I mean, supply and demand. Yeah. That's right. Is that leading into your departure from Vantage? Yes. So the recession hit and what do you do in a good recession but change up your life? So David and I, the junior leasing reps, decided to get married. Oh, that's a curveball. <laughs> yes. Got it. So he didn't really care about that high-rise office building. He was just trying to get in good with the good-looking leasing agent from the office that he shared with. That's amazing. Well, so, it's, it's certainly not the most romantic love story I've ever heard, but it's quite cute still. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely not romantic, but uh, you know what? A great business partnership and marriage was formed. So there you go. That's, that's married after all those years. That's amazing. That's awesome. So you departed the company together. I mean, I you did guys- because you know it was frowned upon to marry your coworker, and you know office was like really rough at that point in time. So he had the better opportunity advantage to be industrial, to do the stuff that he was doing, he was developing. And that was a, still, like it is today, very hot sector in the market. So I left and I went to work for another landlord in town, the Duke, Duke Steinemann. And again, another guy famous in Atlanta real estate. So, I mean, I've worked for some really pretty credible mentors, Duke, Candace Flick, Ben Carter, you know, is another one I actually yeah. worked for him. Advantage, he's still a, a big name. If your listeners don't know who he is, just Google him. It's there's going to be a lot there. Yeah, there's and, like whole um, cities you know, ben, himself, basically. Yeah. He's, yeah, he's the real deal. Ben Carter. He is definitely the real deal, a brilliant deal maker. I mean, he just really knew how to make a deal. So I learned a lot advantage, obviously, from Ben. But then I went to work for Duke and I made my biggest deal there ever, like 50,000 square foot bank deal. I was on a team. So that was kind of exciting. You know, again, my deals are going to get bigger through the years, which I think is, is interesting. But one thing about Office is that, that I didn't love about it was that it wasn't a relationship business. And I didn't know that at the time. Getting into retail later, I figured that out. But it was kind of one deal and done. You, know, you make this big 50,000 foot deal and that's it. There's not another one to make. So it was just a constant of trying to like fill your um, coffers with prospects. So that's just one thing I'd mention about that. I did have this little building in Buckhead. We called it the Flash Cube. It was next to Lenox Square Mall. And I think it's a hotel now. It's long gone. But um, I made a deal. I cold called the Colombian Consult. And these two women that ran that office uh, couldn't speak any English at all. And so um, I was like, oh, man, you know, they really needed new space. They wanted to be in Buckhead, but you know, we couldn't really talk. So a space planner, Claudia Rosario, she interpreted, she rewrote my LOI in Spanish. She was the interpreter in all of the meetings. So you know, calling upon your resources, what I would say is really important. I made that deal. I think it was like 1,200 square feet. I mean, it was just tiny. It was, it was not big at all. But for some reason, I just had to make that deal. And it's one of those that sort of comes back to bite you because 
then all hell broke loose in Colombia. And, you know, all this was going on with the drug wars and, and there were all these threats. And so there had to be like 24-7 security. This is the late 80s, correct? Yeah. Got it. Got it. Okay. Sorry. I just wanted to put that in the context. Keep going. So anyway, I don't think Duke ever forgave me for that. But again, <laughs> my career there was not long. Again, it was probably just a couple of years, two to three years that I worked with him. And then in 1990, my husband was offered an opportunity. He was with Carter and Associates at the time. He and Ben Carter had moved on Carter and Associates, Ben's father's company. And they wanted David to open the industrial business park office of Carter in Jacksonville, Florida. So that was kind of nice. We had this opportunity to move to Florida and Ponte Vedra um, in particular. And we were kind of like, hmm, this is good. But like, what's Libby going to do? So um, I commuted back to Atlanta, kept working for Duke for a bit. But then Carter, coming full circle, offered me a job in the retail division to lease a shopping center that they had in Jacksonville. Now, I had no retail experience at this point. I'd only been leasing office space. And you know, Aaron, retail is very different than office. Yep. So the reason they hired me is because you know I knew Ben, knew a lot of people in the company, and they kept they just their leasing reps in Jacksonville. They'd they'd come to town to check on things, and they'd find a guy sitting there reading a book with his feet up on the desk. And they're like, "Enough of this. We don't care if you've got uh, retail experience or not. We want you to just lease the shopping center for us, River Chase." So I did. So that's how I got a job in Jacksonville and talk about coming full circle. You know, my husband and I, who couldn't work together at Vantage, now we're working together again at Carter Associates. Naturally. So tell me about that for leasing that first shopping center experience. I mean, a lot of the people listening that may not know the Jacksonville market are saying, how could you make a living leasing one shopping center? This was a pretty big undertaking though. Yeah. It was a big power center and they built it with another company, Centennial. They were JV with Centennial and they made a fundamental mistake, which was they put these 4,000 square foot pods in front of the shop space. So they built buildings in front of buildings in a power center. Power kind of wasn't a lifestyle, but it had a, you know, a few decent tenants, you know, in the small shop space. So there were these big things that blocked you know, all the signage and it made it you had that much further to get to the shop space. You had to walk past these pods. So that's a big no-no on our business. And you know, I think they did that to make the pro forma work. If I can offer any advice, please never add shop space to your pro forma or your property to make your pro forma work because it's a disaster scenario. Advice from somebody who's learned the hard way, it sounds like. Yes. <laughs> so I can after working on it for a few months. Again, they were paying me well to do it. I was like, you got to tear the pods down. I mean, you got to tear them down. And I mean, I had no retail experience. Wow. And so guess what? They tore them down. They did. Wow. So you really put yourself out there at that point. I mean, that was, yes. a, that was a political capital risk that you took. Big one. It was. And, but we got the shop space leased when we tore the pods down. Got it. So, so tell me, I got to know, tell me some of the, who are the tenants that, some of the tenants that you put in there. Oh, they're like really like Kinko's was one. There was a Steinmark Fabrics 
concept. Well, that makes sense. That was Steinmark's headquarters. So mm-hmm. Exactly. But in doing that, I got to work with two people. Howard Spiva, you may know of him, Barnes & Noble now, but he was with Centennial. So I worked really closely with Howard. And then later on with Regency locally, Andy Hoffheimer, who does Whole Foods deals to this day. So that was back in the early 90s. So if you don't think relationships are important and you know how you treat people and, and interact with them, I mean, I'm still doing deals, interact with those guys today. Almost 30 years later. Unbelievable. Yeah. yeah. Unbelievable. All right. So you're leasing Regency. The story is obvious, right? We're talking to Libby last year. You leased the heck out of it. You knocked it out of the park, I assume. And everybody's I happy. Pretty good job, I'll say. Yeah, you didn't get fired for making the pod demo recommendation, which is <laughs> huge. So certainly, did you lease yourself out of the job? Or I mean, what happened next? Well, Carter then said, okay, we've got all these other malls and properties in their retail arm. So I started re- leasing you know, away properties. Living in Jacksonville, leasing other properties. And I mean, these were not pretty, Aaron. I'm just going to warn you, you know, tough, tough, tough malls. You know, at the time, malls that probably shouldn't have been built. One was in Fort Pierce, Florida, if you know where Fort Pierce is. Not a pretty story, not a pretty mall. I think they had a nuclear power plant close by and it you know, had the signs. No stopping, standing, or taking pictures. Getting a retailer to go to Fort Pierce, Florida was really heavy lifting. So that was one. I had one in Kissimmee, Florida. Um, that was a Walmart-anchored mall. Like, you know, that just doesn't work. A Walmart anchored mall. Try leasing shop space next to Walmart inside Interior to Mall. It doesn't work. No. The um, mall's a good idea and Walmart's a good idea, but they're not a good idea together. No, and they were not. They didn't work. I mean, I, I made deals there, but they weren't pretty. And then the other one was in Stewart, Florida. I don't even remember the name of the property, but it had a lovely Bells, like a Bells, that wasn't even an outlet at the time. I'm sure it's still there today, if I had to guess. I don't know. So, but what happened was the mall was just dead. And so I made my biggest deal ever there. I made a deal with Kmart and it was like 115,000 square feet. I was on my own. I mean, Carter just gave me these malls. Again, no training, just go get it done. And you know, I just figured it out. So I made this big Kmart deal and it's the first time I had to go to zoning meetings and you know, reconfiguring signage. I mean, and I had no partner. It was just me on my own. How did you get so, it? And I'm sorry to cut you off, but like <laughs> one of the important questions that I asked everybody who's on the show, as you well know, is like, who is your mentor and helping you get going? And, and obviously you had some, you've already named your mentors on the office side. And those people were obviously invaluable. And I'm sure some of those lessons certainly carried over, but like, you also said yourself, retail is certainly a different animal. Kmart was the prettiest girl in the room at the time. How did you yeah. get Kmart to step up and do the deal? How are you getting this stuff and stuff with such a little retail background? I mean, Aaron, I really don't know. It was really just hard work and putting myself out there. I had no training. I mean, the only training I had was from Ben Carter when I used to lease office space and can display. So, you know, Howard Spiva, the Centennial, that helped a little bit. He would come to Jacksonville sometimes when I was leasing that power center and we would brainstorm on things. But really, when I went to Carter and I started working on those malls, they were just sort of a headache to Carter at that time. They had other projects they were building. They built Cumberland Mall. They built uh, Carolina Place and Charlotte. They were building new malls. And so these malls were owned by a partner of theirs. And, you know, really they were just doing it just sort of as a favor. So 
I don't want to say I didn't really care, but they just didn't have enough time to care that much. And they just weren't great properties. So if you could make anything happen there, you were like a hero, huge hero. Yeah. So the JV partner is uh, MetLife. So, you know, I really worked more with the asset managers at MetLife um, than I did with people at Carter back then. I'm really glad I asked you about that because hearing that component of the story is so important that there's a lot of younger people in the business that have asked me and through the freshman forum thing that I do with Beth Azor, how do I get this? How do I do this? How do I get that? I don't have anybody helping me. And I'm an avid believer in training young talent. It's mission critical, but sometimes those resources aren't there. And sometimes you're not in a position to be able to make those things happen. And for you to just step up, grab the bull by the horns and figure it out is really an incredibly powerful message that is great for not only our younger listeners, but anybody who's listening to this to hear. So it's funny. It's also within your blood, right? Because I asked you, how'd you do it? And you said, I don't know. I just rolled up my sleeves and did it. Well, the reality is, is we do know it's just human nature and, and something that you would just do instinctively. So kudos to you for getting all that stuff figured out. It clearly led to some bigger and better things for you down the line because you probably were making yourself as a... As to be a pretty serious name in the retail space, and at least in, certainly in Florida and Southern Georgia at that time. So tell us what happens after you make some of these bigger deals and make turn a, a dirt pile into, a, into an income-producing uh, shopping center or mall or whatever it may have been. What happens next? Well, so Carter had a divorce internally. So that changed me and my husband's trajectory. So then wanted the company to go in a different direction. His father died and the original partners, they just didn't see eye to eye. And so there was this big divorce in the company and the group that my husband, the industrial business park group was going to go with Ben because that was his background. And the retail was going to go with Dan Rather. So it was kind of like, we were like, oh my gosh, this is not good. This is a no-win situation for us to be sort of on these opposite sides here. So because the assets were really all the retail assets were going to stay with the company. Um, and I was working on Carolina Place, that opening at the time. So we just decided, mm, we better just get out, get out of Dodge here. So David, through Carter, had a job opportunity with a company called Encore International. It's a network of brokerage firms, kind of like a Collier's or chain links from the retail side. Um, but you know, they weren't quite as loosely affiliated. They're a pretty strong group of a network. And so he went to be their business development guy in Philadelphia. He got this opportunity. And right at the same time, a header called me about an opportunity in Philadelphia as well, knowing what was going on at Carter. You know, a lot of that talent was picked off. Sure. So I had this opportunity to go to work for a company called the Rubin Organization in Philadelphia. So my husband and I were like, yep, this was meant to be. And we picked it up out of Jacksonville and moved to Philadelphia. I can't even imagine a Southern girl like yourself. Jacksonville was probably shaking enough for you as it was. I mean, Philly might as well have been a different country. It was. I'm sure. <laughs> so tell me about that experience. Oh my gosh, I have so many stories. We could just do a podcast on that. (laughs) But it was awesome. It was just like moving to the Northeast is like one of the best career decisions we ever made. Really? I'll tell you because, yeah, being a Southerner, 
I think back then people kind of looked at you, you weren't maybe as smart or sharp, some accent. And so getting experience in the Northeast, that kind of commanded a different level of respect. I look back on that and I'm like, wow, you know, that was really, really a good move. So my first day at Reuben, I'll never forget, I was working for this guy, Norm Peters is who hired me. And gosh, Norm was a character. Back then, people smoked in their offices, like like, they would be sitting right here smoking, which just to me, come from where I've been, it was just unbelievable. I couldn't imagine that. But like a lot of the leaders at Rubin smoked in their offices. And so that was my first day. That's what I remember with Norm with a cigarette, kind of hanging out of his mouth. Well, Libby, we don't really have an office for you, but uh, you're going to need to go to this other building we own you know, a couple of blocks away. And they've got an office for you there. And I was like, okay. So you know, go in my purple coat and high heels and walk the box uh, with the HR person to the other office. And say, take me upstairs. And I've got this. It's a nice office with glass. You can really see everything. And I kind of start putting my stuff down and she leaves. And people are walking around, they're crying, they're sobbing, their arms up in the air. And I was like, what is going on? And they had bought Reuben. I didn't know this. They bought this company, Strauss Greenberg, the brokerage company in Philadelphia. And basically, the day I started, they let almost everybody from Strauss Greenberg go. And I was in Strauss Greenberg. Oh, and here you are like, hey, I'm Libby. Like, I'm really nice. Southern Bell coming in. I'm going to move in here. I'm so excited to meet all you guys. And they're like all crying and taking up their boxes. It was awful. I'm sure. It was awful. Oh. Oh, that's a welcome to the company experience. Yes, that's the way not to do it. Wow. Okay. All right. And you you told me that you moved to an incredibly cold climate. It's complete culture shock. And the first day was awful, but it was one of the best decisions you've ever made. So there's got to be some process. Well, then I ended up working for another female dynamo, Pat Burns, again, notorious in our business, like Ben Carter was in Atlanta. Also a smoker, Irish Catholic, tough. I mean, if you think about Pat Burns, anybody that worked for her knew she was tough. Any retailer knew she was tough. Also brilliant. She was a brilliant real estate mind. And let me tell you, she was tough and she toughened me up. And so that experience, I gained so much knowledge and I just wasn't afraid of anything after working for Pat Burns. Okay. So that's invaluable. That's an amazing takeaway. So we're obviously forever grateful to Pat. You were leasing, right? Still leasing? Yeah, I was leasing just malls all over the Northeast, some in some pretty scary places. I learned about how to make a New Jersey left turn. You name it. I was all over New York, Long Island, up in Massachusetts as well. So they had all these... They just had a lot of lot of malls, kind of secondary malls. They had some really yeah, premium malls as well. And I just worked on pretty much anything that they threw my way. And I made tons of deals. They were very aggressive about deal making. Pat was. And I made a lot of big deals as well. I did actually in uh, Wayne, New Jersey, I did the first Old Navy mall deal. So oh, um, that was kind wow, of... that's a cool claim to fame. Yeah. So, you know, again, took shop space that wasn't working. We converted it to big boxes on the front of the mall. Just things like that. I got to do a lot of really creative work there. And, you know, kind of made a name for myself from Philadelphia. 
worked with great people. I mean, like Eric Mallory, great developer who was kind of a partner of mine that we did a lot of a lot of this kind of work with where you know I would lease it and he would do the development side of it. So we were a team. Nikki Colombo, who works with me now here at, at Bayer, she's been here for a while, but I met her through Ruben, Alan Feldman. I've got like all these great, great people that are good friends to this day. That's awesome. So you guys are living in Philly, you're making it work, you're happy, and that's and it. Donald Rose, for the rest of us, right? GGP, GGP came knocking. Ah, then GGP came knocking, of course. Yeah. So, wow. I went through the run-up of GGP. I started in Philadelphia with them. And again, they loved to make deals. They were just such a deal-making driven company. So I fit in really well. Again, another female boss. Can you believe this? Jean Schlemmer, great female leader. She was born to teach. And she taught me how to teach others. She just led by example. Uh, GGP was heavy on training. So that's really where I got my first formal training. They uh, a couple of jobs, a couple of jobs into it, and a few years into it, like a few anchor deals into it. You finally got some training. That's good to know. But it was more leadership training. It really wasn't oh, dealing with training. You know, they really wanted to invest in leaders. And so they invested in me. So I was at GGP for 10 years, moved from Philadelphia, we moved to Chicago. Just the Chicago move, did, was that spurred exclusively off your opportunity or did it work well for your husband's or? Didn't work well for him. So we kind of took turns moving for each other. And so this was my turn and it was great for me. And he then became president of Encore. So he was running that network and it was international. So he just really traveled all the time. Chicago was a great place to be for travel. Sure. Still is. I mean, there's like four airlines up there. Yep. I this is interesting. So I had GGP was expanding. So I think they probably had like maybe 50 malls or so when I went to work for them. And it was over like 230 when I left. So I went through the whole run up of them buying and managing malls all over the US. And this was just, well, let's just kind of hit into breaks for a second here. Let's just kind of put it into context. And when did you go to GGP? When did you make that switch? Let's see. I think that was probably mid 90s. Okay. And you were in Philly for how long with GGP? Mm, two years. And then we made the move to Chicago. Tell us about what spurred that move to Chicago. Because it's not like you did it for a new job at a different company. You did it for a new opportunity within the organization. Tell us about that. So GGP, I came in as a senior leasing rep, leasing malls in the Northeast. Boom. Became a VP of leasing like within, I don't know, a year or so. Boom, SVP of leasing, opportunity to move to Chicago. We're going to make you SVP of leasing over the whole third-party portfolio, which was, again, about 30 or 40 malls at the time. And so I was over the leasing for all all those properties. And then, boom, they just reorganized. Every 18 months to two years, GGP went through a reorg. It was amazing and hard. But they reorged again, and I became SVP of asset management, which meant you were over all the business unit, everything leasing, management, marketing, development, you know, all aspects. Oh, you're just, it's obvious. I'm not even going to ask the question. We all know, based on this far into the episode, that you're a deal junkie. Like, that's okay. I'm an addict too. I raised my, raise my hand via the Zoom call. Now, that had to have been a pretty serious switch in your lifestyle from going from leasing, which is deal, 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 to asset management. 
there's a lot more complexities to it. And sometimes doing a deal may not be the best idea. Tell us about that transition and what got you excited about wanting to do that, given that you were doing What was being the leader? The whole kit and caboodle. So just when I ran the third party group, there were 550 people in my business group. I mean, that was a big deal. And so you could really change things up. I mean, I was the boss. And it was just an incredible time. And then it set me up really to move into the REIT. I took over the East Coast for the REIT properties. Country was divided into three regions. And so basically, you know, I took over those properties. And you know, we had a lot of work to do. So I went and saw every single asset from Maine to Florida over to Louisiana. And it was, again, it was like a PhD in real estate working with development truly for the first time, working with all the guys that ran the numbers, um, the analysts and... Property management. I mean, everything, right? The acquisitions team as well. Like I would go look at every deal before we would acquire it. So, you know, we were buying malls at the time. So that was a really, really great time. And then they were training. You know, there were all these courses and training and leadership. So I can't tell you, it was just like... So much education. I mean, like drinking through a fire hose. Wow. Wow. It must have been amazing times. So when did they ask you to take on the SVP of asset management role? Roughly, it doesn't matter. I'd say that was probably around 2000. So you got promoted like three or four times in five years. Yeah. I had five promotions at GGP in 10 years. But they all happened within the first five years, right? Wow. Oh, yeah. Well, most of them did. My last two SVP of asset management for the third party was around probably to uh, 99 or 2000. And then I moved into the REIT, which was like a promotion in and of itself because you're working on all the REIT assets. I mean, that was you know, really where the money was. And then I headed up redevelopment for the company. That was my last position there. Got so it. again, another reorg, it was when we bought HomeArt. Um, not HomeArt, excuse me. It was... Um, Oh, oh gosh, I'm trying to remember the company that was the last company that they acquired. Wow. So that was like crazy redevelopment, 60 malls that they wanted to redevelop across the country. That's when I was like, I'm done. I was on a plane all the time. I had a young daughter. My husband and I were both traveling like crazy. And it was when I kind of like just woke up and said, enough, it's time for me to get off this bus. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure it had nothing to do with the actual job itself, but other than the toll, it was... Because you're the type of person... I mean, I know you well enough to know that you were probably thriving in that environment. But at the same time, like it wasn't a sustainable lifestyle at the time. It wasn't. And I didn't think a lot of those deals were going to get done. Oh. You know, I sort of saw myself in this new role spinning my wheels and the team. And it was you know, there was a lot, say, hundreds of millions of dollars. Some of these redevelopments were like... 50 to $100 million. I kid you not. And the returns really weren't great. And so I could kind of see the writing on the walls like, uh, I don't think this is... Yeah, it was just through that reorg. It was that last position. I just didn't feel good about it. Got it. And that was in 2000, what? 2005. Okay. I think we're getting to where there's some light at the end of the tunnel now. So what happens next? Bear. So Jeffrey Bear and I had, we knew each other from, you know, some conference we met at and uh, just like you and I here and met at a conference, became business friends. And he was like, if you ever want to get out of the mall business, 
you got to come see me. We're you know, developing lifestyle centers. You know, that was the shiny new penny at the time. Think about it. Lifestyle centers were after... That's what was after GDP. That's why I didn't think our deals were going to get done. All these new lifestyle centers were coming up all over the place and taking market share away. And so I was like, you know what? I think this is the place. This is the product I want to be in. I came... Well, and it's also important to note where Baird is located too, right? <laughs> Back to the south. There you go. Birmingham, Alabama. And it's kind of like making a circle. Like, can you see this circle from Atlanta? Yeah, I can. I'm following you. Yeah, you go from Alabama to Florida to Philly to Chicago. And then, like, you basically made the eastern half of the United States a clock. And the the hour hand was the jobs. And the second hand was all the planes that you were traveling on all the time. I see it. I have a very clear vision here. I think your creative brain is rubbing off on me through osmosis because that's about as creative as I've ever gotten in my life. So I appreciate you. Oh, I love it. Shedding that light on me. So, love rubbing off on you here. Yeah. So I went to came to Bear on the executive committee with them. So there were five of us on the executive committee. Interesting. Three women. So I became the third woman on the executive committee. And there were two men, Jeffrey Bear and David Silverstein. So it was the five of us that ran the company. What was the dynamic like there? Who was responsible for what quickly? Or what was your responsibility? My, my role was uh, to oversee development and leasing. Got it. So, and we were building you know, lifestyle centers. I think we had four or five on the drawing boards at that time, You know, all over the country, New York, West Coast. I mean, you just name it. How many properties did Bayer have in 2005 when you started there? I don't know. I mean, they had built the summit and had built some other things, but you know, I don't think the portfolio was as maybe a third or a half of what we have today, I'm guessing. Got it. Can you give us some context? How many properties is Bayer have today? So today we probably got about 20 and we have about 10 million square feet. So again, this is a guess. We were probably 5 million feet at that time. Got it. And we were focused on lifestyle centers. And so the other properties that were in the portfolio, sort of a different group took care of. My mission was to get these properties developed and leased. And that was my role. So it was a big role, obviously, when you have a bunch on the board. So my first day on the job, this is a great story. So I leave GGP on a Friday and ICSCs like the following Sunday. It just... Okay, yes, which one? Huh. So I was like in May. And so I finish up and I pack my bags and I get on a plane Saturday morning to go see two of these projects, sites, projects, whatever. So the first one is I fly into Denver and this guy Lloyd Goldstein picks me up at the airport and he did a lot of work for Bayer at the time. And we drive this little, he's got this like 10 can rental car and we go up, drive up to Loveland, Colorado. So it's about an hour north of Denver. And we're driving and I'm like, okay, we're looking at the competition, you know, which was a Pogue um, Center that was supposedly not quite done yet. We get there and I mean, the thing is up. You could tell it's a Barnes and Noble. It was a Foley's. It was a theater shop space. Everything was done except for like the streets being paved and you know, the finishing touches. And I'm sitting here looking, I'm like, mm, this is a little further along than I thought. We didn't have Google Earth in 2005. And I was like, Lloyd, man, I thought this was still like on the drawing boards. He's like, mm, guess not. It's, it's pretty far along. And so I was like, oh my gosh. And then all of a sudden, this storm, this like really brutal storm just rolls in like in minutes. And debris is flying. There's all this construction debris flying on the streets, hitting the tin can 
car. We're sitting there crouched down. We're in the middle of the lifestyle center and tumbleweeds, these gigantic tumbleweeds are rolling down the streets. I mean, I swear, I thought we were going to die like metal flying. This one guy was hanging on to the Barnes and Noble building, the construction worker, like with his feet off. I mean, it was crazy. And I'm sitting there, I'm like, oh my gosh, we're going to die. We're going to die in this lifestyle center under construction in Loveland, Colorado. <laughs> my first day on the job. <laughs> you've, had some, I mean, you've had some unbelievable first day stories. I know. It's sort of like this recurring theme. Yeah, it? you know, most people are like, when they go in for their first day of a new job, they're like, yeah, I filled out the tax forms. I, I learned where the bathroom was. I met a few people. But and I got my email stuff. You're like, yeah, I watched a bunch of people get fired and I almost died. Yes. Got it. Okay, so that's insane. That site, our site, the bear site, it's like this just vacant piece of land. So I called Jeffrey and I'm like, okay, first day done. I almost died with Lloyd Goldstein, who I just met today. And Hoag's project is basically done. <laughs> got it. You're on fire going into Vegas. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. So then I showed up to ICSC on Sunday, went to Reno to see our other project, which I was pretty happy was well under construction. Good. And, okay. Uh, so there was a wind of the story. Good. Yeah. Yes. All right. So it's 2005. You're basically brought in to help put gasoline on the fire on the execution of the existing projects and probably be pretty critical on the new stuff that Bayer's doing. But you're only overseeing leasing and development at that time, correct? Right. Say only. That's a ridiculous word. Pretty major role that. Anybody in the business would love to have taken on. Tell us about your progression with Bear. Obviously, you've been there for some time now. What was sort of your track record like there? Well, it was good. I had a great run here. 2008 hit, of course, another recession. I don't know how many I can't count I've been through at this point. But you know that obviously set us back and we had to eliminate all of our projects pretty much except from if they were under construction. And by the way, we were under construction in Fort Collins at that time. So I had to go back to Denver week after week to get that project done. I brought in a developer, Eric Mallory, who I'd worked with at Ruben. So he, he sort of third-party developed for us that project. And we got a lot of things built that were really, really good. We did another project here in Birmingham called Cahaba Village with Whole Foods. Just really good. Our Reno project was opened really strong you know, as well. And I was able to like really affect the merchandising on that. And you know, I just loved it working with architects and developers. But you know, again, recession, everything stopped. Very similar to today. How do you suggest that people that are younger in the business do? I think you've only mentioned the word money once in this whole episode, which tells me that your why is a lot deeper than, than money. But at the same time, a lot of the listener base is a little bit younger. They haven't navigated the waters of a lot of recessions yet. Obviously, in 2008, you were pretty well established in your career with this opportunity to bear, but. Like you said, you've seen a few of them, quite a few of them, you've navigated them. What advice do you have for people who aren't as well established in the business to navigate through these recessions, specifically the one, you know, like the one going on now? Yeah, well, focus on your relationships. You know, you got it like our team right now. I looked at them and I'm like, they're focused on what we call RDG, rent deferment group. You know, not a fun thing to be doing right now by any means. It, it would it would bring anyone down. And I just walked in one day and I was like, you guys need to like stop, cut it off. You can only do this so much per day. You've got to get back out into the market. You got to work your relationships. We've got to start meeting together, Zoom, however we can do it to do it right. And we've got to get back out in the marketplace. 
So I would say sort of like wallowing in your misery is the worst thing you can do because that's where you're going to end up. And you got to work your relationships. So figuring out how to, as an example, I read a really good book, Giftology, recently. And we figured out how to send some gifts to just our, our good clients or people we were working with. And they didn't have to be big things, small things, but handwritten notes showing you care, just like in COVID, not trying to get anything back for that. So I think it's people at the end of the day. This is a people business. Although we have space and we're selling space and we're building space, you make deals because of people. So, and people remember that. Aaron, I remember you from like OAC and you sent me this really nice email afterwards and it was very thoughtful. And I was like, Gosh, that's so nice. He didn't do it to get anything from me. It was just something really nice and he just wanted to pick my brain a little bit. So do that. Pick people's brains right now. I just say get back to the people. And if you're not looking for something in return, good things are going to come to you. Love that. That's sound advice. By the way, I appreciate you mentioning email. It makes me look good since we struggle with that on this podcast because the guests are so far more achieved than I am. So stop it. <laughs> Assets well, no, 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 I'm not gonna, nothing about me. So you're at Bayer. I know your role has changed there. So I want to get to that evolution. There was five of you running the organization at that time. Libby kind of had her lane right of development and leasing. How did you morph into becoming the president eventually? Because that's an even more encompassing role, if that's, which is even hard to fathom within itself what you were doing. And I just think I was with the company, I was committed to this company, loved the company. But we went through a pretty major development cycle. Again, another round of developments. We opened two in 2017. And you know, the partners decided at that point that it was time for the next level of leadership to come up. So the managing principal in New York kind of drove that, John Rodenstrike. That's what I report to now. And he's like, it's time, guys. It's time. We need to make a change. We've been through all this development. We lost a lot of people through that. You know, development got a lot harder over the years, a lot harder. So we lost a lot of employees, a lot of really great talent. And so I think he felt strongly it was just time. I think Jeffrey and David agreed, you know, it was time. And so we started this transition in 2017 after we opened these two projects. And that was hard. I think that might have been the hardest thing ever in my career that I've ever been through was that transition from CEO and partners to the next level. But again, we made it through it, just head to the ground. Jamie Watkins, is um, she was the CFO, and I were tasked to become co-presidents. And I laugh about that title because we said we're following Warby Parker. And uh, now Netflix just announced they're going to have co-presidents. So see yeah, we're trendsetters. Hey. <laughs> now, Jamie was on the original five executive committee team with you? No? After that CFO left the company, she stepped into that role. But Jamie and I started at Bayer the same, really pretty close to the same time. So we'd worked together for almost 13 years. Who else, if there is anybody from that original five on the executive committee are still... Are still... Jamie and I, we're it now. So everyone just moved on. And you know that happens, but it also means there's opportunity. Right. So you can say I got here because I just waited it out. <laughs> right. I don't buy that for a second. Something tells me that like talent, hard work, perseverance, quality leadership, a few of those things might have had to do with it. But I can only imagine because I know how committed you are to your craft. And I know how much you value people. I mean, 
that enthusiasm and passion came out no more than like three minutes ago when we were talking about it. And you've already touched on it a little bit, but I can't even begin to fathom what it would have been like to see the other four people that you were on the executive community team with, who basically are talking to 50 times a day, I'm sure, because you're all passionate, driven people trying to accomplish the same thing, what it must be like to see them all cycle out for whatever reason it may be. So I guess the, the lesson learned there is that that's unbelievable to me that even though you're at this incredible point in your career doing these wonderful things, that one of the hardest things that ever happened in your career came at a time where it should have been the glory days, if you will, of your career, which I'm sure it's a bump in the road, but it's still a big bump. Mm-hmm. And that speaks a lot about you and how you've been able to navigate that and can only imagine what that would have been like. Yeah. So it took time and we worked through it. And John, I mean, what an incredible leader he is. You know, he just told us, you've got this, you can do it. He was our greatest cheerleader. And he just said, y'all are professionals, just run the business. Your professionals, just do what you do best. And so to have someone like that, that has so much experience, he was a Wall Street guy. Again, look at his resume, unbelievable. Sure. And, and whatnot. But to have that person sort of behind you, shoring you up and saying, you know, I got your back if anything happens. That was really, really important. I'm sure it was something to kind of help keep you sane. I mean, through all that. Yep. Unbelievable. Is this the role that you always wanted? I mean, is this what you set out to do? So- I no idea I would ever be in this role. I mean, I just, it's amazing. The interesting thing was, you know, we went through that two years of transition, but they didn't change our titles. So it really wasn't official, official until a little over a year ago in spring of 19, where we went from executive vice president, whatever our titles were, to president. And I just didn't anticipate the notoriety that would bring. I never really thought about it. And man, it was like, wow, like all this press was after national press. All these people wanted interviews. That's a big deal. Are you kidding me? Yeah. I mean, it doesn't surprise me. I know it's not anything that you were after by any means, but... Yeah. So I think especially because it was two females running this company, this real estate company, commercial real estate is a very, still a very male dominated business. And I have been so blessed to have these incredible female mentors throughout my career. So, you know, that's good. And I think that, you know, also for sanity, you know, it's the things you do that when you're not at work. So when I moved to Birmingham, I was really able to get into the community, serve, you know, through my church and just really, really buckle down. And, you know, I think that helped keep the ego away. And it just sort of started reducing it over time. When you see how other people live and things and how you can help them and, and serve them, I think that really had a big impact on me on having empathy. I asked one of my leasing team members, I was like, okay, I've got to do this podcast. And I know he's going to ask me some leadership questions. Tell him what it is about me that resonates with you. And she said, Libby, you have got so much empathy. And I was like, really? And she goes, yeah, you know, you just do. And I think it's because of all this nonprofit work that you do in the community and you kind of put yourself in other people's shoes. So that was a really, really nice compliment. I I appreciated that because I think that grew in me over time after my tough Philadelphia days. You know, I think I've learned empathy. So never say you can't learn things. And it wasn't intentional, it just happened. It's amazing. All right. Drum roll. 
as I hit my desk while we do this Zoom call, I got to hit you with some random questions. Not really random because I asked them, I guess, this stuff, but you got to answer them quickly or at least decisively. Sometimes they, they weren't nice side tangents. So here we go. You, I assume, have weaknesses. I've yet to find any in the hour that I've been here with you, but I got to think you have one or two out there. What are they and how do you navigate? Well, I'm not a nurturer. I'm not a nurturing type person, i.e. if you look at a good book I've read recently called Five Voices, there's this nurturer personality. And Jamie, my co-president, is a guardian. She guards the numbers. She is speaks the numbers. And that is not my forte. So one of the important things is having people on your team or working on a team that has those strengths that you do not have. And so clearly Jamie, another guy, Doug Schneider, they've got those things covered and it's great. It really helps make our executive team today much, much better. Sure. I think I know the answer to this. We'll see. But the biggest curveball you've been thrown in your career? Ooh, I've had some curveballs. Yeah. It wasn't a career curveball so much, but when I was at GGP, when I was in the third party group, my boss left to go work for the competition to be do business development for them. And it was actually it was JLL. It was their big management. They did a lot of malls and properties. And he basically said in his parting words were, we're going to steal all of your business. I became head of that division. I was promoted when he left to run that division. And I mean, that was like, whoa. Yeah. Oh, so it was like all of a sudden my boss, my former boss was my rival. So we overcame that. We were able to make a, a really big deal with Goldman Sachs that had like 10 or 12 malls that we brought into the portfolio. I had a great partner there who was everything that I was not, Barb Nicholas. You know, she was a marketing guru, property management, and we just showed them, you know, really what general growth could do for them. And we won that deal and we made a lot of other mall deals. We took that portfolio from about 35 malls to like 60 or 65. Oh, wow. Wow. So you hit that curveball out of the park. Nice. Yeah. Unintended. Yeah. So you obviously are a reader. You've mentioned a few books already. What's one book that's changed your life? Well, a lot of books have changed my life. So I'll just give you the most recent one. There's a couple more that we can't miss, but don't, don't be afraid to hit them with us. By the way, we post these on our website, investmentgroup.com. We recently did that. So all the guests with, with Limitless, we're getting their book recommendations on there. So if you yes. drop a couple of them, we can don't worry. We'll make sure that the listeners get a chance to hear that stuff. I love both fiction and I love business books. So from okay. a business book perspective, I read Traction. Um, are you familiar with that? The EOS? Great book. Read it. Very good book. Good book, especially if you're running a company and you're going through a pandemic. And, <laughs> and, uh, you know, how are you going to change up your business? And so we are adopting the EOS and we're sort of in the middle of core values right now. What's your passion? You know, those statements that really resonate. And actually, next week, I'm rolling that out in a town hall meeting to the whole company of, of core values and why, you know, how we're going to live. And so I've really enjoyed that book and just practical applications out of it. Sure. Great. My favorite nonfiction, I mean, fiction book, or actually it's nonfiction now that I think about it, is Educated that I've read recently. Have you read that? I haven't. No. Who wrote that? Tara. Let's see. What's Tara's... Let me see. I'll find it for you. But yeah, no worries. We'll, we'll find. We'll figure it out. Educated by Tara, something. What, yeah. Tell us about so, that. One. Oh my gosh. 
So how did she become educated against all odds? So this is a story about a woman that her family didn't want anything to do with their kids having education. And that's all I'm going to say because I'd ruin it you know, if I say anything else. But it is one of those books that just blow you away, her story. Yeah, it sounds like a story about perseverance, which I'm always all about. Okay, this is always the one that gives people a chance to take a deep breath. I mean, and I'm fortunate to provide a platform and selfishly get to hear about your incredible story. And you kind of, I mean, when you reflect on what you've been able to do, impressive really doesn't begin to describe it. And at some point in time, you were no longer going to be in this business, right? Like we just, nothing lasts forever. And whenever that day comes that you choose to leave or whatever it is, the business in general, ICSD is inevitably going to write an article about you. Not only because you were so accomplished by anybody's standards, but you said it yourself and it's not a secret. Like there's just not as many women in positions like you're in that you've been able to, to put yourself in. And with all that being said, it's going to be a big deal when you leave, just like it was a big deal when you got named president of Bear. What do you want that article to say about you? What do you want your legacy to be like? I really want it to be that I've helped others that were less fortunate get their start in our business. I think I want people to say that Libby was a mentor and be the change you want to see. So my goal right now, what I'm very much into is diversity. I think I told you this in advance of the call. And commercial real estate just really isn't a diverse industry. There are a lot of industries that aren't. Um, We're really kind of slow to get there. So that's what I'm focused on. And that is what I want my legacy to be, that I helped a lot of young people get their start, but people of color as well. That's really important to me. Uh, Another book, White Fragility, highly recommend that as well. And how do we put ourselves in other people's shoes that didn't grow up the way Aaron, you and I did? So that's what I hope my legacy is. Very inspiring and meaningful. I love that. Libby, I speak for everybody, especially those who are old white guys in blue suits that listen (laughs) to this podcast. Thank you so much. It's invaluable advice from someone who's accomplished an incredible amount over the course of your career. I'm fortunate to be able to call you a friend and just know that your story, both individually and what you're doing with Bayer is completely inspirational. And can't thank you enough for joining us. You are very kind, Aaron, and I thank you as well for having me. Of course. Thanks for listening to Limitless, How to Crush It in Commercial Real Estate. I hope you were able to extract one piece of value out of today's episode. That's my only goal. If you did, in fact, get some value out of it, let me know via LinkedIn, Instagram, or through a review wherever you get your podcasts. 